Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period. For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods. You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. This week on Unexplainable, The Bleeding Edge. Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jerusalem Demsis and Dylan Matthews. We're going to do a good episode. We're going to talk about masks. We're going to talk about Bangladesh. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. Um, But first, I have a sort of um, sad news to announce at the beginning, which is that I am going to be leaving The Weeds uh, after two more weeks of shows. Uh, it's going to be great. We're going to be in great hands with Jerusalem and Herman, who've been doing an amazing job as hosts. It's, um, sorry, <laughs> I, I, I feel sad. The Weeds is very close to me, um, but, you know, I think it is it is probably the, the right time for everybody to uh, move on with things. Vox has some great ideas for the show and for a sort of final Weeds episode one week from Friday Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff, two excellent New York Times reporters who uh, people may remember as the original co-hosts of The Weeds with me, are going to be coming back. Uh, We're going to be having a roundtable. We are going to uh, really, we're going to weeds it out. We're going to talk about, I think, healthcare pricing reform proposals from the Biden administration. But personally, I spend a lot of time uh, ranting and raving about monetary policy. Uh, so we're going to talk today about Jerome Powell. He is the chair of the Federal Reserve. Donald Trump appointed him to that job. Uh, previously, he had been put on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors by Barack Obama, uh, but he's a Republican. He was sort of Obama was making a kind of a a package of Fed nominees, and this was someone who the Obama administration economic team considered to be a reasonable Republican, who they could sort of put there as a a sop to Senate Republicans. Then Trump wanted to put sort of, I guess he put it as like his own man in at the Fed. It's not like he and Powell are like buddies, but Powell is a Republican. And Steve Mnuchin, it seems like, steered Trump toward Powell over some other people who were Fed outsiders, but who Trump knew better. And I remember when this happened, you know, when I talked to ex-Obama people, and they all said, you know, we don't, I don't know, we we don't think you should fire Janet Yellen, but like Powell is fine. Um, he'll do a fine job. I feel like he has done a pretty good job on at least the topics that I mostly care about. But there's a big push from the left to dump him. And that has involved, I don't know, like a a bunch of different complaints. But Dylan, what's what's your understanding of of what's going on here? Sure. So uh, as you say, there are a bunch of different sort of lines of criticism of Jay Powell and and arguments for a replacement uh, Fed chair. I think the the two most significant ones, um, actually, let's do three most significant ones. The first and most basic is that he's a Republican and Democrats have a right to appoint their own person to run the Fed. So Brad DeLong, who's an economist at Berkeley, who knows a lot about the Fed, knows a lot of these players, has been arguing for replacing Powell 
basically on sort of social circle grounds of, yes, he's been uh, very pro full employment right now, but he's a Republican. He has Republican friends. There's no guarantee that he'll maintain those positions if he's under pressure from fellow Republicans throughout the rest of Biden's term. I'm sort of skeptical of that for various reasons that we'll, we'll go into. The other two are financial regulation and climate change. So the Fed it has a number of jobs, but the two big ones are uh, monetary policy, making sure we have full employment and that inflation is under control, and banking regulation, uh, that major banks uh, have accounts at the Federal Reserve. The Fed uh, has a lot of regulatory power along with other agencies. And Powell, while very, very progressive on employment, I think is, is less of a, a diehard true believer on increasing capital ratios for banks, doing the kinds of reforms that Liz Warren and, and sort of the financial regulatory sort of community in the Democratic Party wants. And on climate change, this has not traditionally been something that's considered part of the Fed's purview, but I think there's a, there's a movement to consider every part of the federal government as involved in a great effort to fight climate change, which totally makes sense given the scale of the challenge. And there are some, both some specific things that I think activists in this space want, like rating sort of bonds from fossil fuel projects as riskier and requiring banks that invest in things like that to hold more safe capital as a, a insurance against them as a way of sort of indirectly deterring them from investing more in fossil fuel projects. And a lot of other sort of more symbolic things like Jay Powell took a while to join this sort of international group of central banks that were committing to do certain things on climate change. Um, and I think people I've, I've talked to and read on that would say that on its own doesn't do a whole lot, but it's just sort of a sign of commitment and him being later than the European Central Bank or the Bank of England or the Bank of Canada looked bad to them. So that's my attempt to to sort of charitably relate these critiques of Jay Powell. I, I think you have a less charitable take on many of these. No, I mean, I, I have in some ways, I give, frankly, more credence to DeLong's point that you might just want a Democrat in the office. I thought that like Donald Trump's stated reasoning for firing Janet Yellen, which was that she was a Democrat just like made perfect sense to me. And like, I thought he handled it really well, honestly. Like Trump always often handles things poorly, but he he didn't trash Yellen. He didn't come up with some whole elaborate set of like fake reasons. He didn't blame her for anything. I think he he praised her, in fact, as having done a good job, but he said he wanted his own person in there and he did it. And in a weird way, if that had been the whole thing, right, like if, if this was the whole push from day one was just like, you should put in a Democrat, not because Republicans are necessarily bad, but because people are impacted by subtle psychological biases. You want somebody who is friends with lots of Democratic Party Hill staffers, Democrat ex-Democrat lobbyists, Biden administration appointees, just somebody who like at the margins biases will be to say this is good. I would really sort of buy into that. Like, I just feel like it was a huge problem with Ben Bernanke's tenure at the Fed. Not that not that he was like sabotaging the economy because he's a Republican, but like he was a Republican. So he thought that 
the Obama administration's policies were misguided and was inclined to give a lot of, you know, there's decisions under uncertainty, right? So you're inclined to give a lot of credence to the idea that this president who you don't support, whose policies you disagree with, is like actually the source of problems and that you are being asked to like bail out this bad regime versus you are trying to help you know, be, be a be a helping partner in, in something that's good. That all to me, I, I mean, I think you can argue whether that applies to the current situation. And, and I have some doubts, but it it's what I thought last winter. I would say I find the climate argument very puzzling, right? Like if you literally believe that we should be pulling every climate lever available, then you should appoint a Fed chair who will deliberately plunge the economy into a depression because that would greatly reduce short-term CO2 emissions. Now, like the climate people aren't saying that, right? Just like they're not saying we should bomb coal power plants in India and, and other things like that. But I think that just goes to show that like, Climate advocates are like, they're not, in fact, crazy people. They don't think that the climate emergency should trump all other considerations in all other areas. They're like, actually like super reasonable. And their policy proposal is that the United States of America should increase subsidies for clean energy production and tighten regulation of the fossil fuel industry, which is great. And like, that's not what the Fed does. So the Fed should try to do good monetary policy, I think. And it's weird that this like out of left field concept that like somehow it's like it's Jay Powell's fault that like the United States Congress is not enthusiastic about increasing clean energy subsidies. Like that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me um, on its face. So a few things here. I think, firstly, to throw a little bit of cold water on the idea that Trump's appointment of Powell was was fully, fully great. He did. I remember there was some reporting around, you know, he liked the look of Powell. The man just like looks like a central banker. Like, I don't know if that's like the best heuristic. It worked out here, but uh, clearly not the best politics. He also reportedly thought that at five nothing, Janet Yellen was like too short to command the world's economy. (laughs) So there's definitely some some sexism and stuff working at play there. But yeah, in general, the politics politics of it made sense. And then, you know, coming into this, when I was looking into the climate case against Powell that people have started making, I was extremely skeptical. And now I am actually much less skeptical that it is like reasonable arguments that people are making. I think at the end of the day, it's not probably sufficient to say that this is enough to replace Powell when there are other agencies that can do a lot of what they're asking for. But just to kind of steel man a little bit of what they're looking for, uh, I think some of the progressives are talking about things like wanting increased climate disclosures from companies. Now, the SEC could just do this, so I don't think it's necessary to say that the Fed needs to do it. But that's like a reasonable thing to say that we should know which companies are extremely at risk of, um, you know, creating financial collapse. Like it is one of the tenets of what the Fed needs to be doing to ensure that the, you know, financial system is is safe and doing those kinds of stress tests. They're also asking that in addition to the normal macroeconomic stress tests that the Fed is doing, that they also incorporate climate risk tests. That seems also reasonable to me, especially when there's a bunch of re- research coming out. And that shows that, you know, a lot of climate risk may not be accurately being priced into the economy. There was something that came out, I think, in April of this year that showed that in flood zones, real estate properties were being over valued by the tune of like 40 billion dollars um and there's like research that comes out like this all the time for like years this is not like new people know about this like little brainerd has talked about this in speeches that's that's another former fed gov chair you know so i think it's like 
it's important to recognize that this is like not just all kind of coming out of left field. And I think this also there's a big thing that happened during the pandemic that I think is also important. So following the months where COVID kind of hit the U.S., we saw a lot of, you know, potentially recessionary effects start hitting. Um, the Fed starts doing a lot of easy monetary policy, trying to goose demand. And part of that is buying up a bunch of assets on the financial markets and secondary financial markets in order to lower interest rates, to, you know, calm financial fears, to make sure that, you know, investment and businesses continue going and that workers don't just get laid off indiscriminately en masse. Part of that, what ends up happening and that at the time, we're actually seeing critiques from progressives saying that we should not be buying up debt from fossil fuel companies and that, you know, the Fed should not be doing that for both reasons of you don't want to be encouraging this kind of behavior and also for reasons of these are actually potentially very risky assets to be having and you don't want to be left holding the bag if they do end up collapsing. I think this is actually a reasonably good point because A, like it is the case that you know, if oil and gas companies don't do well, the positive externalities of saving those companies is not high. Like oil and gas is an industry that is extremely volatile. So like you have a situation where like they go out of business all the time and it's like that's the kind of industry it is. That's why it's really high pay. And also secondarily, of course, all the negative effects of climate change in general. I think that the political case against this is what actually makes it hard. Um, On the policy merits, I think it's actually very reasonable to say all these things should be changed. But on the politics, if you have a Fed chair that starts discriminating against specific types of companies, that could really put the Fed in danger. It's able to do and act nimbly in financial recessions and in kind of crises because Congress leaves it alone and like knows that it's not supposed to touch what it does. I do think that if it starts a sort of culture war over climate change, you could have a really dangerous situation where Republicans could get in power and then you have, uh, um, you know, changes to the Fed's mandate. And I mean, how do I want to put this? I feel like back, you know, during the primaries, right, there was this kind of discourse about, you know, what, what were the stakes? in this race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and and other people. And, you know, one viewpoint, the correct viewpoint, was that the main things that mattered, at least on domestic issues, were just the electability of candidates. That if you don't win, you can't do anything. Um, And if you do well, you're more likely to get congressional majorities that will let you do things. And I mean, there's an institutionalized progressive movement that was just not going to accept the answer that this factional battle did not really matter. Um, So they put a lot of time, a lot of smart people and some good attorneys and things like that, you know, really like ran through the text of like everything. And they came up with a lot of kind of outlandish sounding ideas for, for things you could do like the Department of Education could just stop collecting all student loans, things like that. And with the Fed, I think it's true that there's like a fair amount of sort of latent authority lurking around that you could at least try to use. And, you know, the question is, is like, should you do that? Right. Like, does that really make sense? For starters, like, would it hold up in court? Right. Because one thing is, what can a smart lawyer come up with that, you know, they would feel comfortable taking to court? That they would not feel that their friends, the other fancy lawyers, will like mock and scorn them for having developed this argument. But another argument is like, okay, what are you going to do in like the real world where you have a mostly Republican judiciary? And what would the point be, right, in taking 
financial regulatory uh, actions that will be characterized as, you know, capricious and violations of various statutes that you then have to defend to a hostile judiciary that get a lot of businessmen coming on TV, talking about how you're doing socialism and destroying the economy, that get all the Republicans in Congress talking about how we need to audit the Fed. And that ultimately, like Joe Manchin, as the pivot point senator, is like he's still there, right? Like you, you, you can't like wave away the American political system. And it seems like way more likely to me that you're going to talk Joe Manchin into increasing the amount of money for solar panels than into like standing back to back with Joe Biden and hypothetical green Fed chair as they move to like cut off all lending to fossil fuel projects. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in the real world as opposed to just as like a take about how, well, if you did everything to the max, you could do a lot because, you know, like you couldn't, you couldn't, right? Like the system has limits, I think. Yeah. There's also some slippage about what climate thing you're trying to do that there's you can sort of divide the proposals between ones that try to protect banks from the climate and ones that try to protect the climate from the banks and those are are quite different and have very different sort of ramifications for the climate so some of the stuff about sort of stress testing for for investing in fossil fuel assets trying to sort of recognize climate as a systemic risk you could make an argument that very indirectly like maybe if you do that then Citibank will decide that it needs to sort of put a price on carbon internally to offset its risk. But I think basically what you're talking about is is trying to make banks adapt more to a sort of a world of rapidly changing climate to diversify their assets in, in ways that protect them. And it's not at all obvious to me that sort of trying to protect the banks themselves from collapse is going to have large effects on the actual climate. It seems more plausible to me that the banks would just sort of restructure in ways that make them more resilient without actually changing what kind of activities are invested in in the economy. And on the opposite end of that, of sort of trying to protect the climate from the banks and trying to sort of raise the cost of investing in specifically fossil fuel stuff, it's sort of funny to me that this conversation is happening at the same time that the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill is being hammered out uh, in Congress, which is set to include sort of a, a carrot as opposed to stick version of a carbon tax where uh, they pay utilities for uh, meeting certain targets on renewable energy, big subsidies for research and development on unclean energy, some fees on imports that are heavy users of fossil fuels and sort of fines for utilities that don't meet certain standards. All of that seems very straightforwardly, like it will significantly reduce emissions. And I think part of why people are are sort of pivoting their vision from that to the Fed is they don't really believe that Joe Manchin is going to go for a lot of that stuff. And, and it's, in fact, really, really hard to pass ambitious legislation through Congress. And it feels easier to like have an independent executive agency doing these things with a wave of a wand. But the Fed does not do things with a wave of a wand. It's a board. Only some of the board is appointed by the president. A lot is appointed by sort of local bankers in Kansas City who do not share the Sunrise Movement's views on, on these things. And, and more importantly, like, I think there are like both practical and like more idealistic questions of democratic like legitimacy that like Congress has passed a law saying that the Fed has to maximize employment and stabilize prices. 
they have not passed any laws telling the Fed to do anything whatsoever on climate. And it feels like the appropriate way to tackle climate change is for like Congress to pass laws tackling climate change. Well, so actually, speaking of that, let's take a break. And then I want to talk about who is actually in the mix here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu nap. That's N-A-P-P. I think sort of relevant to, to I want to I want to get to this because I'm going to talk to my consul later in the week and he knows a lot about regulation, but um, is, is not supposed to speculate on individual personalities. And, you know, one one thing that I do think is relevant here is that if you wanted, I guess there's like there's like two ways to talk about like the central bank taking a more aggressive role in climate change. One is if you assume the political consensus, right, like, you know. 67 senators like definitely think that the central bank should tackle climate more aggressively and everyone just agrees and maybe there's a law or, you know, maybe there's not because Congress gets lazy, but they like put the personnel in who who want to do it. But then there's like the actual world, right, in which it's a 50-50 Senate, in which we know that a bunch of Democratic senators are, you know, a little change averse. Two of the pivotal members represent big coal mining states. And also you need to, I don't know, you need to appoint somebody who seems qualified, right? Like even Donald Trump, you just brought in another member of the Fed board, right? It was like the thing, like his team was like, no, Don, like you can't go too crazy here or like the stock market's going to crash, you know, like things you don't want to happen are going to happen. You can't, you can't just like pluck somebody uh, out of the ether. So it seems like the other candidates, you know, who are in discussion here are Rafael Bostich, who's a a housing economist, who is the president of the Atlanta Fed, and Lil Brainerd, who's a former undersecretary of treasury, who's been on the Fed board for a while. And as best I can tell, like, neither of them actually support this kind of expansive climate agenda, which is, again, part of why I just find it a little baffling as a criticism. In fact, I mean, like a lot of the people pushing this are responsible for Lil Brainerd not being made Treasury Secretary, right? Well, to be clear, I think this is one thing that I also believe that Lil Brainerd was not talking about climate change, but I did find speeches going back 
to like 2019 and she did this big event at CAP in 2020 where she talked about strengthening the financial system to meet the challenge of climate change. It's not clear to me that she supports all the things that they're talking about here. I don't think that she's going to say that like or that she would say in this hypothetical world where she's Fed chair that all of a sudden like there's going to be a time limit where banks can have to stop investing in all you know fossil fuel industries. But like it is clearly more top of mind to her than it is to other people. So um, I think that's important. But secondarily, I think the fact that there's not like this coalescing around an individual to replace Powell makes me like more likely to believe that what progressives are doing is actually just pressuring the Fed to care more about this internally. Um, It took external pressure to get Powell and the board to join the Green Fed Alliance, International Alliance, what are they called? I don't know. There are a bunch of central banks around the world who are committed to like greening the economy through monetary policy. And so it took pressure to do that. It makes more sense to me that that's what they're doing here um, because they haven't come out and said we want X person to replace them and that there isn't someone who seems clearly viable. But Lil Brennard was talking. This was not I mean, this was something that was a new argument to me as someone who was observing the Fed. But this was something that she was talking about for a little bit of time. And then, of course, on the secondary kind of issue of financial regulation, she's also someone who has been um, probably the most prominent voice at the Fed opposing the deregulatory aspects of what Powell has done there. I think she was the lone dissenting vote um, when there were some deregulation around capital requirements and things like that. So technically, she is doing more there. I think it's just a question of politics. I think here the politics are very clearly not in favor of replacing Powell. Well, and I think the other beyond Jerusalem's point about just sort of like pressuring whoever is in charge of the Fed, which I think is is an important part of what these activists are doing. There's another vacancy in the mix that the Dodd-Frank Act created a vice chair for supervision to be sort of like the regulatories are at the at the Fed. I think with an understanding that the chair of the Fed is going to mostly focus on employment and inflation and that you need someone sort of focusing full time on on financial regulation. Randy Quarles, who was Trump's appointee, his term is, is up next year. And I think one plausible outcome of this fight is that even if Powell gets reappointed, Brainerd gets the vice chair or someone like Sarah Bloom Raskin or uh, soon-to-be Weed's guest Mike Consul gets the vice chair for, for supervision. Someone who's sort of a really dyed-in-the-wool progressive who cares very deeply about financial regulation and might be more open to, to sort of targeted measures about fossil fuels. And that, I think, would meaningfully change sort of the policy regime. I don't get the sense Jay Powell really cares very much about financial regulation, which if you're a financial regulation expert, I would totally understand that pissing you off. But I think a corollary to that is that if you get a deputy in there who does care very deeply, he will probably be amenable to whatever agenda they're pushing. Yeah. And Powell has voted in line with this um, vice chair for supervision, I think almost 100% of the time. So it is clear that at some level, either that there's persuasion happening because a lot of these board meetings are they're actually like talking to each other and coming to a consensus or like if not a universal consensus like they're ta- like they're having a debate amongst peers at some level and so like it's not like this person is someone who's super set in his ways we know Powell is actually someone who is willing to you know, really change his mind quite drastically around monetary policy and to make implement those changes um, at the Fed. I think most importantly, when we're talking about, you know, full employment, I think that's pretty clear. In 2015, we saw December 2015, we saw 
Powell, Lael Brainerd, and under Janet Yellen all vote to raise rates um, because they thought that unemployment was at the point where um, if they kept pushing, you would see inflation. That did not happen. We saw inflation stay steady and unemployment continue to decline up until COVID sort of hit. And, uh, you know, he reframed after seeing that sort of evidence and actually pushed forward a framework where now we are pushing for full employment and, um, you know, kind of being willing to say we're going to risk some transitory inflation. We're not going to freak out um, until we get more solid signals of overheating. And so, you know, this is clearly a person that's willing to change his mind, potentially because he's not from the kind of the traditional background that Fed chairs have been from. And so, you know, I think I have a lot of optimism in the idea that if there was like a good case for, you know, uh, climate risk being a real financial risk to the economy, that, you know, the person who was under him making that case would have a good chance of convincing him. And same thing for financial regulation. I also, I do want to give due to the disagreement between Brainerd and Powell on the supplementary leverage rule. I mean, this is the sort of concrete thing that they have clashed on. They, they vote in different directions here. I actually think this is a pretty important policy. It's boring compared to like, we got to like put the bankers in handcuffs and, you know, um, have a debt jubilee, that kind of thing. Uh, but basically, this is how much of the investment activity of the big banks in America can be financed with debt versus needing to be financed with equity. Banks like to, all companies in general like to finance their investment activities with debt rather than equity because you capture more of the upside and your downside is always limited because you can walk away. Um, this is the same, you know, you buy a house, right? Standard mortgage is 80% debt. Uh, if you uh, live on the edge like Dylan, uh, you get you get a higher leverage mortgage than that. And, you know, the problem is that you're not large banks. It's not just like one person who might go bankrupt. If huge banks go bankrupt, it can wreck the whole economy, which is bad. Uh, but also the threat of wrecking the whole economy can lead to bailouts to avert it. But that can encourage banks to take on more and more debt than they should. Uh, the banking industry takes the view that it is very, very costly to regulate this kind of activity, uh, but they are never, I would say, able to produce a real reason why that is true. And I think that this is a situation in which, you know, Powell's background in banking and general Republican deregulatory leanings have led him to the wrong answer, whereas Brainerd, as a kind of center-left technocrat, uh, correctly sees relatively strict global leverage rules as a way to insulate the economy from banking system problems without going in for this kind of um, like real smashing up of, of the banks in the way that, that left-wing people want. I do think you could get that change probably without necessarily a, a turn at the Fed. But I see that as different. I mean, Jerusalem, you, you make a good point that Brainerd gave this speech on December 18th. But if you read her speech on strengthening the financial system to meet the challenge of climate change, it's not a very interesting speech. She's invited to this CAP conference and John Podesta's there and they're putting this stuff on. The climate people have a lot of money to spend at progressive nonprofits and they kind of got everyone to do a, you know, here's the climate angle on our issue. 
But it's like uh, insurance companies are thinking about climate risks and we should encourage them to do that. And yeah, I mean, we should, right? But if you put it the other way, right? If like people were at your door demanding a Green New Deal and your solution was, well, we're going to get insurance companies to, you know, make sure they've accounted for climate risk and their portfolio management, like they would laugh at you. Like it's not it's not a real answer on on climate change, which I mean, I do think Leverage rules are a real answer on on bank regulation. Critically, though, they are not the answer that the left likes. And they were very upset at the possibility that Brainerd would become Treasury Secretary because they want like Elizabeth Warren's regulatory ideas, which I'm sorry to say, but she she lost the primary quite badly. <laughs> and like, that's the reason why those ideas aren't going to be implemented. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with some of her ideas and I disagree with some others, but like you would have to convince people to do that stuff. Putting in just like some other establishment liberal isn't going to do it. Like Joe Biden is president, right? Like we could hear exciting news stories about how his appointee is at SEC and Treasury. They're like clashing with the Fed about this stuff. But like none of that is is happening, right? Like I don't want to downplay the significance of financial regulation as a topic, but like there's not a transformative FinReg agenda that's being held up by Jay Powell anyway. So I think a few things here. One is that, you know, if you think about um, the perspective of people who are climate change activists, this is something that they view as an existential risk. Um, They correctly are very worried about the potential millions of people who could die or become climate refugees or all these different things. If this is like your worldview and is this the issue you work on, the idea that you shouldn't care about specific agencies because the impact is marginal, I think is not that compelling. I think they just think that anything you can do, you should be doing. And that like, if it saves, you know, X number of lives, in the future, like that's really important to care about. And I think that's like actually a quite a rational worldview to have. If you are, of course, there are there are trade-offs that we've discussed quite frequently here. But that in of itself. And so like you look at Lil Brainerd's speech and, and yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think that she's going to be saying that, you know, banks have to stop investing in fossil fuel companies or anything like that. But I do think there's this question of there are all these unseen ways that regulators end up influencing policy that are not the big ways that we think about their jobs traditionally. Whether it is just like I mean, a lot of the Fed's work is signaling, according to, you know, mainstream economics. It's signaling to markets. It's signaling to banks. It's explaining what the smart people think and how you should behave and how you should think. And so their signals that they're sending are actually quite important, both for monetary policy. And I think it's feasible that it could be important for how banks choose to behave. Um, We've seen in recent years that reinsurance companies have become much more worried about their climate risk. I don't think this is in no small part to the fact that there's been a lot of discussion and conversation among smart people about this. And so the fact that Brainerd is making speeches about this and talking about it, I think, is is relevant. And if, you know, if this activism by, um, you know, I think uh, AOC and other climate folks who have talked about this leads to Jay Powell talking about it more, that seems like actually a, a win to me. And then secondly, I think on this financial regulation stuff, I think the reason why it's a bit confusing um, for me is like, you know, I looked up, I tried to figure out like where all financial regulation happens in the United States. And there's like 17,000 different places <laughs> that are regulating uh, financial markets. And there's not like one person where there's a backstop. I think this ends up being one of the confusing things where I'm like, some of this stuff could be doing at the Treasury, some of this stuff could be happening at the SEC, some of this stuff could be happening through Congress. And 
a lot of, I think, the urgency to engage with the Fed is, A, the Fed has been a place where nimble policymaking can actually happen. It is like, you know, an exception, honestly, to the rule of a lot of American governmental bodies where people can have new ideas, those new ideas can get implemented, and that, uh, you know, that nimbleness is actually really helpful to the American public. And so it's very attractive to think like, okay, this is an agency that can actually act and respond in ways that we think are really helpful. How do we make it more like us rather than dealing with the difficulty of like redoing or reshaping agencies like the FDA, which I think in many ways have failed over the last years, or look at and try to figure out how Congress can actually pass these bills, because it is quite rational to believe that, you know, progressives maybe have one or two more bites of the apple at big legislation, if that. And then after that, they could possibly, you know, lose the House, lose the Senate or even the presidency at some point for uh, uh, quite a bit of time. And so if you're someone who's coming from the perspective of like, this is my one shot and I'm going to influence every single agency in place that I can, that's quite rational to me. Yeah, I mean, I think one reason the Fed has been so nimble, and, and I think part of my skepticism here is is that it's been sort of very laser focused on its mission. So one thing it did very, very effectively is turn on the money spigot and set up a bunch of different lending facilities, both for traditional assets that it, it tends to buy, like uh, mortgage securities and, and government debt, which it buys because they're guaranteed by the gov- federal government, and for sort of corporate bonds, uh, state and local bonds. Part of why I was able to do that so effectively is that they just wanted to turn on the money spigot and prevent a depression and had like no other priorities. And the fact that they did that got a lot of activist backlash, as you mentioned, because some of the, the money coming out of the money spigot went to, to fossil fuel companies. And I'm sympathetic to the argument that Lael Brainerd would be better than, than Jay Powell. I think it would have been a disaster if in, in the heat of, of March, April 2020, the Fed was like instead of just like spraying money everywhere was like trying to carefully make sure that none of the money went to bad places. Like if you turn on like a fire hose, more water comes out than if you're like specifically watering specific plants. <laughs> and and the key was to get as much water out as, as humanly possible at that moment. And part of why they were able to do that is their focus was full employment they thought it would be, and I think they thought correctly, given that this is not a very heavily staffed agency, that it would greatly slow down their operations and greatly slow down the recovery if they were sort of picking and choosing industries. And I think that relates to, to something else that sort of, we've been sort of dancing around in this conversation, which is there's, there's sort of an assumption when I talk to activists who are skeptical of Powell that they can get someone who is as good as Powell on full employment and is also better on all these other things. And I'm very skeptical that that's true. I think Brainerd is interesting in that she might be like the one person for whom that is true, that she's been an ally with Powell over the last three or four years as he's been sort of trying to push the Fed to care more about employment, to care less about inflation. But that is nowhere near the consensus, even in the Democratic Party. Joe Manchin has been attacking Jay Powell for for caring too much about employment, for not caring enough about inflation. Raphael Bostic, who is is one of the finalists, has written a bunch of stuff saying we should not be trying to minimize uh, unemployment because if we do that, we run the risk of creating future uh, sort of uh, financial crises or, or bubbles, and that it's it's sort of dangerous and short sighted to be taking. He doesn't call out Jay Powell, but it's it's sort of clear who he means to be trying to to minimize unemployment. And this is also just an area where it's hard to predict what people are going to do. Jeremy Stein, who is the Democrat paired with Jay Powell when Obama appointed Jay Powell, 
I certainly thought he was going to be pushing for for very loose monetary policy during the the Great Recession and the recovery to to try to get unemployment down. He didn't. He he became famous for sort of arguing we should have stricter monetary policy to prevent future financial crises, which is is sort of crazy to me. As a we should we should prevent the bad thing about financial crises by having it happen now. But Peter Diamond, who was another, it was a failed Obama nominee. I assumed was going to be pushing for a faster recovery and then did a bunch of interviews after his nomination fell through saying like, no, no, I'm really worried about inflation. I, I don't think I don't think there's much that the Fed could do to, to boost jobs. And so I think part of my concern with replacing Powell is it's, of course, theoretically possible that you get someone who's as good or better on that and then better on all th- these other things. But things have a tendency to revert to the mean and the mean quality on on monetary policy is so much lower than Jay Powell's quality on on monetary policy. Well, and I also think, you know, Dylan, you you alluded to this, right? But I am suspicious of FinReg diehards on monetary policy because an issue, you know, we we right now have like actual consumer price inflation that, you know, is is higher than the long-term target and, you know, in strictly macroeconomic terms, I think you know, should be a consideration. But when when Obama was president, inflation was consistently low, right? And the main argument against more aggressive monetary policy was the idea that it was a financial regulatory risk. This wound up being an argument that was made by some of Obama's own appointees. It was made by people on the outside. Sheila Baer, who was a Bush administration bank regulator, who a lot of left-wing people decided they like because she doesn't like big banks, um, is a huge critic of quantitative easing, of things like that. And, you know, some of this is a technical disagreement, uh, but some of it is a it's a fairly big picture ideological disagreement, right? If you are uh so somebody told me that, you know, look, we're not as interested in kind of, you know, people's policy statements. What we want to see is people who've been in there in the trenches with us fighting corporate power. Jay Powell has not been in the trenches fighting corporate power. Leo Brainerd has not been in the trenches fighting corporate power. Providing adequate uh, monetary stimulus to generate full employment, I think, has a lot of benefits to workers, has a lot of potentially in a second order sense, makes it easier for people to fight corporate power. But like, it's not a form of fighting corporate power. It's not a zero sum redistributive mechanism. It tends to make the stock market go up. You know, you can say, well, the rich get richer and all the poor get is like, well, a job and a living and, you know, dignity in life. And, you know, I I just like, I actually think that that's a real concern that I have, that if you get somebody whose like main orientation in life is sticking it to Wall Street, that like that will actually lead them to some bad conclusions around this stuff. So I think the best case for Jay Powell rests in this kind of precarity of the full employment consensus here and uh, that Dylan has just talked about. But I think what's even more important here that I think people don't realize is that There's a case sort of being made as a subplot to all of this, that it is the Fed is not doing enough on racial justice. And this idea that um, there's the Community Reinvestment Act, which I think comes around like the late 1970s, um, which basically says that the Fed should be doing things to drive investment into low um, income and middle income areas. And it seems 
very plausible to me that there's like more that could be done there to be doing that, uh, to, to be forcing that and to be encouraging investment in places. And one of the things that the climate case is somehow that, you know, the Fed should be investing in um, climate resiliency projects uh, as part of an environmental justice framework. But I think this doesn't really grapple with what full employment does and how it actually can benefit black Americans, I think, in particular. So for a lot of, you know, monetary policy history, like there's just been this like kind of like, ah, well, black unemployment is higher than white unemployment. And that's just the way life is like. And I mean, this is not like a small number. Like this is like quite large. Like at some point it's I mean, it's double that of regular unemployment numbers. So you have like at one point, uh, I think in the 80s, it was like 20 percent of black people were unemployed and only 10 percent was the average unemployment. Um, right now, I think it's still 10 percent is the unemployment rate for for black Americans currently. And that that's like what the unemployment rate was generally for people during the Great Recession um, when we thought it was extremely, extremely bad. And so the reason why this matters is because if you don't have someone at the Fed who's willing to push unemployment beyond what we think traditionally has been. Um, the lower bound before you get lots of inflation, you're going to leave a lot of black Americans in the situation where they're persistently high unemployment rates. And this isn't just about like whether or not you get a job, right? Like tight labor markets are important for workers on a variety of fronts, including the fact that when a bunch when the market shifts such that workers are the ones that get to make demands of their employers, it means they get to treat you less shittily. They can't like demand that you just come in randomly on your days off because they can't afford for you to quit. Um, you know, it increases the power that you know, women might have in a workplace to say, like, I'm not going to take sexual harassment because there's tons of other jobs for me to go get. And uh, it makes sure that black employees are not able to be treated with kind of racial discrimination that we see because employers can't discriminate racially because they can't find any other workers. And then it gives people the ability to get these skills and get these access to these jobs in a way that they wouldn't have in the past. And so I think it's really important. I think one of the things that's been really weird when seeing this case being made is that there's very little comparative work being done by progressives here in making this case against Jay Powell around what it would mean to lose someone even who's who's even a little bit less pro full employment than Jay Powell is, and who's even a little bit less kind of removed from the general economic consensus that might pull them towards caring more about inflation. And this isn't just a thing about, you know, the fact that he wasn't kind of like a, a you know traditional background of an economist. I think it's also the fact that it's actually really rare for someone who's like kind of in the upper class elites to care more about unemployment than they do about inflation. I mean, this is like an uncharitable reading. But like if you're if you're wealthier, inflating away debt, you're like upset about that. Whereas people who hold debt are like, great, I would love for you to inflate away the debt. It's like not that big of a deal. So there's a structural, you know, bias around who's going to care more about inflation and how that that's going to harm people versus unemployment, which persistently harms people who are usually not involved in these policy conversations who, you know, are likely not ever engaging with the Federal Reserve or what it's doing. So I, I think that, like, there is a uniqueness to Powell that I think is, is very unappreciated and it needs to be grappled with more if people are going to make a real case against him. That is true. OK, let's take a break. Let's do our white paper. Let's let's talk about masks in Bangladesh. Okay, so our paper today is The Impact of Mask Distribution and Promotion on Mask Uptake and COVID-19 in Bangladesh. The bottom line of this, I think, will not come as, like, super shocking to anyone involved in consuming mainstream media. It is that wearing masks is good, and it helps slow the spread of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and reduces coronavirus cases. It also says, I guess, a little more surprising to some people that using surgical masks is a lot better than using cloth masks. Uh, what's interesting about this is that the research design is sort of like bigger and more rigorous and in some ways more contra 
controversial uh, because they went and did a pretty large scale trial, you know, sort of real world randomized evaluation in Bangladesh rather than this kind of like lab stuff or abstract modeling that we've been relying on before. And I don't know, I guess people have a lot of feelings about, about the research ethics here. Yeah, it's so I am actually impressed at their ethical approach here. So uh, one one thing to understand about this is that it's cluster randomized. It is not individual randomized. So they did this in about 600 villages and they paired similar villages. So one village of a certain size and, and sort of demographics does get the intervention, one doesn't. And so they're not sort of pitting neighbors against each other, which is both important sort of ethically, but can have effects on the research. In research on cash transfers, for instance, uh, a lot of envy can be generated if your neighbor gets gets cash and you don't, and that can sort of affect the results in real ways. What's also interesting to me is that it's not about providing masks per se, because they do provide masks, but you can easily get masks in the control villages you can get information about masking. It's mostly about encouraging encouraging people and giving communities to wear masks. And it's mostly about sort of elite cues. And so it's not like they were doing sort of a, a study with vaccines where like only some, some people get it. And you have these ethical questions about whether it's acceptable to deny treatment we know is really effective to, to a control group. No one's denying masks to the control group. There's just sort of more encouragement of them in the treatment arm. I think it's also important that sort of one of the lead authors here, who's Ahmed Mushfiq Mubarak, who's a, who's a great economist at Yale, is Bangladeshi. He said that some of the people in the study were family members of his. I think there are a lot of, sort of understandable ethical concerns people have about these kinds of RCTs uh, being conducted by residents of rich countries in poor countries. This is a study in substantial part conducted by residents of Bangladesh on residents of Bangladesh for the benefit of Bangladesh. Um, so I feel very comfortable with the ethics of it, but it is tricky when you're doing something of this scale and when you're using something like masks where we we have a sort of pre-existing sense that these work really well. I think the most surprising thing about this to me is the difference in kinds of masks. So unsurprisingly, the results are that encouraging people to to wear masks dramatically increases the, the share of people wearing masks. It triples. Physical distancing increases. COVID falls by about 11.2%. But that not all masks are equal. So I've been going out with sort of cloth masks that family members who are into sewing have sent me uh, for, for the last few months. Cloth masks are better than nothing, they find, but not dramatically better than nothing. And what you really want are surgical masks. So they don't necessarily have to be sort of tight, form-fitting KN95 masks, but sort of the, the flat blue and white masks you get at a hospital really are much more effective at, at preventing COVID than, than the cloth masks that people were sort of DIYing last year. Yeah, as someone who spent a lot of time and effort finding color-coordinated masks for my favorite outfits like this was extremely depressing <laughs> uh this is not like a small finding that they did there was like pretty large difference between cloth masks and surgical masks and i part of me is kind of like 
frustrated at the public health messaging around masking. I mean, one of the things they find in this paper, um, they note that the WHO's reasoning for not wanting to talk about masks very early on was that they were worried that it would increase people's risky behaviors, things like you wear a mask, so you're going to physically distance less. They actually find an increase in physical distancing amongst places that wear masks. I think it's like small enough where you could think it's potentially like not that big of an effect, but like clearly it's not decreasing, um, according to this study, physical distancing. And so, you know, this has been a big complaint about a lot of people like where public health officials are trying to like game three steps ahead of what you will do instead of just saying the thing that you should do. Like you should distance and you should also wear a mask. And also like, let's think about which masks are best. And like, obviously there's a massive supply bottleneck happening early in the pandemic, even getting like cloth masks that were not being homemade were like difficult to do. And like, I remember Etsy was like one of the most, it was interesting to like heroes of the pandemic is because you were able to sell a bunch of homemade masks very easily there. It's depressing that it was like almost nil effect with cloth masks, but um, you know, what are you going to do? Um, I, th- I think the other interesting part of this paper is they actually end up surveying. They pull a bunch of people at the um, World Health Organization, um, the World Bank, and the National Council of Applied Economic Research at Delhi about what they would expect the study to say before they get to see the results of the study. And I thought this was particularly interesting because, and I wish that I had been able to do this to myself before I'd read the paper. Um, I don't know what I would have thought. But they look at people were actually not very good at predicting what the study would have said, only uh, very few policymakers correctly um, noted the, the impact of the core intervention on mask wearing and physical distancing, and they systemically underestimate the overall impact of the intervention and the impact of in-person reinforcement on mask wearing. A lot of them thought that um, you know text messages were going to be more effective at getting people to wear masks. They thought that one of the tests that the intervention they did was like have people put signs in front of their houses if it was like a mask wearing household. That didn't do anything, and like the policymakers thought that it would do a lot. The expected value when they like averaged out all all of these policymakers' expectations of what the study would actually do was that mask wearing would increase 22 percentage points. And the actual number is, is quite a bit higher than that. And so, you know, I think it's a situation here where, you know, it, it is it is useful to think about um, how little good research we actually have informing a lot of the formal decisions that policymakers have to make without data. And one of the amazing things about this research design is that it's not especially complicated in like conception. It's just like quite costly and requires a lot of very detailed and methodical work that is extremely expensive and time and labor intensive, which is amazing, but like underscores to me that we should be spending a lot more on these massive large scale studies and that we should be answering a lot of the questions that we all fight over on Twitter, but like we could just have the answer potentially <laughs> if we just put more money into it. But yeah, the study is very, very cool. So, you know, I, I think to somewhat connect these conversations, the chaos in public health agencies talking about these kind of issues is one of the reasons why I am worried about ideas like mission creep at the Fed, right? That like a big thing that we've seen going around and round in the mask discourse is initially all the masks were surgical masks. And there was a question about how many surgical masks were going to be around. And there there were N95 masks. Uh, But you could buy surgical masks in stores. And public health officials, I think, reasonably did not want a huge nationwide run on surgical masks. They wanted this procedure masks for healthcare workers, for people who were, you know, had good reason to believe that they were going to be exposed to the sick. And those people... They didn't happen to be experts in apparel manufacturing. So it didn't occur to them, 
I think that it was relatively easy to spin up production of cloth masks. And like, fair enough, right? I mean, you know, they, they A, are not experts in apparel manufacturing, and B, they're not like generalist podcast hosts who know about how do you ask people about different kinds of things, you know, stuff like that. Like, they're, they're public health people. But instead of saying, we're really worried about a shortage in procedure masks and then letting society try to come up with a solution to that. They came up with this idea that they should kind of fib to people and, you know, get it through a bank shot. And then eventually they became convinced that encouraging everybody to wear masks was a good idea. They were facing a lot of resistance to mask wearing from various people. And so then they didn't want to get into to complicate the message by saying, now that there aren't shortages, people should really be trying to get good masks. But people should be trying to get good masks. It's not obvious to me that complicating the message would make it less effective. I mean, it might. That's not a that's not a crazy hypothesis. But like they didn't test that hypothesis by setting up an experiment across many villages in Bangladesh. They just kind of decided that like they didn't want to do that. But we've seen that a large segment of the public, unfortunately, has tuned out public health guidance. But most of the public has not tuned down public health guidance, right? Like we hear a lot about the people who won't get vaccinated, the people who won't wear masks or whatever. But a majority of the public is, in fact, listening pretty closely to what Dr. Fauci and others tell them to do. And if they were saying, don't just send your kid to school in, quote unquote, a mask, but like go on Amazon, get the Korean masks that have these little fitted loops and like the good triple ply thingamajiggy, like some parents would do that. Like it would be very helpful. And we could use some of the stimulus money to purchase such masks. Our industrial policy could be geared around trying to produce them. It might just be a whole huge failure. But I feel like the only way to get to success is for technical agencies to actually articulate like what is within their sphere of technical competency and then try to let other people handle other things and that the efforts from the public health world to kind of bank shot the supply chain and textile manufacturing and education and some kind of speculations about mass political psychology and how the media is going to report things. It, it hasn't it's just like it hasn't worked out that well. It's made a lot of people upset. It's not clear that it's had any of the intended benefits. It's very confusing. Uh, the pandemic keeps going on for a long time, which is something that I think the public health officials correctly have actually been trying to say for a while that like this is pretty bad but part of that is that like there's more time to adjust to these kind of things and kind of worrying about like well what's going to happen next week at cvs is like maybe not the primary concern right like if we had been working on increasing supply of quality procedure masks starting 12 months ago like i bet we could have had this problem licked now but instead it's like you know we've got delta we've got schools are back open. There's no like boxes from China anymore. Now this paper comes out of Bangladesh and it's sort of like, well, what are you going to do? You know, we, we should have told people about the procedure masks. It's not a precise analogy to the Fed, but I mean, I do think 
they're like there is something to be said for trying to create like really good agencies that like are strong and they're empowered and they're trusted and people have confidence in them, but also that they have humility in terms of like what is their actual mandate? Like what is their domain of expertise? The Fed is not a climate agency. The National Institutes of uh, Infectious Diseases is like not a shirt manufacturing factory. Like, you know, people have to like the experts themselves have to stay in their lanes a little bit, I think. It seems like a very characteristically Iglesias point to end us. That's where I am. Yeah. So the weeds will be back on Friday. It's going to be back next Tuesday. It's going to be back next Friday. It will continue even past then, but it will not be continuing with me. So thanks to uh, Ned Smith-Savadov. Uh, thanks, Dylan, for joining us today. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Be more sentimental. Thanks to everybody who listens. Um, you should all tweet your heartbreak. Uh, but, you know, life goes on. I will find some new audio formats in which to visit with you all again in the future. And so until then, the the weeds will be back on Friday.